This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Years of My Birth by Louise Erdrich, which was published in The New Yorker in January of 2011. Growing up in the midst of a large family, I had never registered the visitations from my presence at those rare moments when I was alone as something strange. The first time I was aware of it was when I was taken from Betty and put in a white room. After that, I occasionally had the sensation that there was someone walking beside me or sitting behind me, always just beyond my peripheral vision. The story was chosen by Tommy Orange, whose first novel, There There, was published in 2018 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Hi, Tommy. Hey, Deborah. So what made you choose a story by Louise Erdrich for the podcast? So uh, you had published, I think last year, um, a short story of hers called The Stone. It's a pretty short, short story, and it's a a strange story, and it just struck me. Um, So when you asked me to choose a story, I went looking for another one of hers, and she's actually published a lot in The New Yorker. Because I haven't known her for short stories. She only has one collection of short stories, you know, with a pretty massive career. Most of her stories start as stories and end up in her novels. Yeah, that's what I've heard her say. Um, and uh, this one just struck me. I, th- I think it's such a perfect story. In what way is it perfect for you? You know, what I love that fiction can do is the way it can get inside a consciousness and the way it can push mystery. There's something so mysterious in this story. And I don't necessarily always like magical realism, Um, But what Louise does so well uh, in a lot of her work is sort of pushing the boundaries of reality where it's still believable and it's still realism. You never are asked to believe too much. Um, It's sort of realism's magic. There's something uh, so strange and and mysterious about it and and really powerful, the sort of cultural touchstones that she does so subtly, the way Native culture plays into it and the way white culture comes up. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there is a supernatural component, but it can also be read as almost completely realistic. You can kind of choose how much you want to think of this as a kind of allegorical story and how much you want to think of it as real. Yeah, and this is exactly what what I love about this story and what Louise does in a lot of her work, like I said. And have you been reading Louise's work for most of your writing career, at least? I mean, she's definitely one of my favorite writers of all time, but I came to her a little bit later in my reading path. It wasn't until I was going to the Institute of American Indian Arts getting my MFA. A lot of native literature I didn't come to until getting into the program. I sort of came in through a back door reading-wise. I read a lot of work in translation, but I I read Love Medicine first and um, just completely fell in love with her work. And do you feel that the connection for you is that you have shared Native American heritage? Definitely. When I first started reading, I actually was a little bit turned off to some Native fiction because it was so reservation-based, and I I have this urban experience. But that was just sort of at the beginning of me thinking about Native representation, what, what it would look like in my own work. Um, the way that she handles bringing in Native culture, I think, is so perfect. There's a clumsy way to do it, and sh- she never does it that way. <laughs> it always comes across really organically. And do you think that this story, The the Years of My Birth, is characteristic of that? The main character, as we'll discover, is actually not Native. Yeah, I think the way that that works for the reader does something really cool. Um, sort of putting you into a Native family as a white character does a lot of work for the story, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Tommy Orange reading The Years of My Birth by Louise Erdrich. The Years of My Birth The nurse had wrapped my brother in a blue flannel blanket and was just about to hand him to his mother when she whispered, Oh God, there's another one. And out I slid, half dead. I then proceeded to die in earnest, going from slightly pink to a dull gray-blue at which point the nurse tried to scoop me into a bed warmed by lights. She was stopped by the doctor who pointed out my head and legs. Stepping between me and the mother, the doctor addressed her. Mrs. Lasher, I have something important to say. Your other child has a congenital deformity and may die. 
Shall we use extraordinary means to salvage it? She looked at the doctor with utter incomprehension at first, then cried, No! While the doctor's back was turned, the nurse cleared my mouth with her finger, shook me upside down, and swaddled me tightly in another blanket. Pink. I took a blazing breath. Nurse, the doctor said. Too late, she answered. I was left in the nursery with a bottle strapped to my face while the county tried to decide what to do with me. I was too young to be admitted to any state-run institution, and Mr. and Mrs. George Lasher refused to have me in their house, which was at the edge of a nearby town where Mr. Lasher owned and ran a farm implements dealership. The night janitor at the hospital, a woman from the reservation named Betty Wishcob, asked the head maternity nurse for permission to hold me on her break. While cradling me, with her back to the observation window, Betty also nursed me. She was still nursing her youngest child at home. As she fed me, she molded and rounded my skull with her powerful hand. Nobody in the hospital knew that she was feeding me at night, or that she was doctoring me, and had made up her mind to keep me. This was five decades ago. When Betty asked if she could take me home, there was relief and not a lot of paperwork involved, at least in the beginning. So I was saved and grew up with the Wishcobs. I lived on the reservation and eventually was educated, as my Chippewa siblings were, first at a school run by the Catholic Mission and later at one run by the government. Around the age of two, I was taken away for the first time and placed alone in a room. I remember the smell of disinfectant and what I would now call despair. Into this disinfected despair there came a presence, someone or something who grieved with me and held my hand. That presence would come to me again at other moments in my life. Its return is partly what this story is about. The second time that an officious welfare officer decided to find a more suitable home for me, I was four. As Betty argued with her, in the dust of our yard, the matted hackles on the dog's back rose. I stood beside Betty and held her skirt, green cotton. I pressed the fine weave between my fingers and hid my face in its scent of heated cloth. Then I was in the back seat of a car that sped soundlessly in some infinite direction. I slept. I woke alone in another white room. My bed was narrow and the sheets were tucked tightly down so that I had to struggle to get out. I sat on the edge of the bed for what seemed like a long time, waiting. When you are little, you do not always know when you are screaming or crying. Your feelings and the sound that comes out of you are all one thing. I remember that I opened my mouth, that is all, and that I did not shut it until I was back with Betty. Every morning until I was about eleven, Betty and her husband, Albert, tried to straighten me by stretching out my legs. They woke me before the other children and brought me into the kitchen. I drank a glass of thin blue milk by the wood stove. Then Betty sat in the kitchen chair and put me in her lap. Albert sat across from us in another chair. Put your feet out, Tuffy, he said. I put my feet in Albert's hands and he pulled me one way while Betty pulled the other. Slowly, as I grew, my legs untwisted, though one was always a little shorter than the other. I was the youngest of their four children. It was Cheryl whom Betty had been nursing when she cared for me in the hospital. Their older son, Cedric, gave me the name Tuffy because he knew that once I went to school, I would get a nickname anyway. He didn't want it to be one that mocked my rolling walk or my head. My head, so misshapen when I was born that the doctor had diagnosed a birth defect, was still a bit flat on one side, where I had been crushed in the womb by my twin. But it had been shaped enough by Betty's squeezing and kneading that by the time I was old enough to look in a mirror, I thought I was pretty. Neither Betty nor Albert ever told me I was wrong. It was Cheryl who gave me the news. Tuffy, you are so ugly you're cute, she said. 
I looked in the mirror the next chance I got and realized that she was telling the truth. The house we lived in had a smell that permeates it still. Old wood, onions, fried coot, the salty outdoors, scent of children. Betty was always trying to keep us clean, and Albert was always getting us dirty. He took us into the woods and showed us how to spot a rabbit run and set a snare. We yanked gophers from their holes with loops of string and picked pail after pail of berries. We rode a mean little bucking pony, fished perch from a nearby lake, dug potatoes every year to make money for school clothes. Betty's job at the hospital had not lasted. Albert sold firewood, corn, squash. We never went hungry. Not long ago, I read a memoir by a man named Peter Razor, who was abandoned like me, only he ended up in an institution. He wrote of the one time that he remembered being held, and said that it remained one of the strangest and happiest moments of his life. I don't remember being held as something special, which tells me that I must have been held so often that the sensation became a part of me, inseparable from my memory of the world. I know that I was loved because it was a complicated matter for Betty and Albert to claim me from the welfare system, though I had aided their efforts with my endless scream. A full adoption involved hiring a lawyer, which they didn't have the money to do. I was afflicted with nightmares of being chased down and captured, and many nights I scrambled into the warm cleft of mattress between them, then held my breath and lay perfectly still until they had rolled over and gone back to sleep. When I knew that I was safe, I opened my eyes and looked into the darkness, which was never entirely black, but alive with shifting green panels and tiny zigzags of fractured light. Then I'd feel myself sliding down into a safe, warm sleep, their slow and even breathing like a gentle rope, keeping me from slipping too far. All of which is not to say that they were perfect. Albert drank from time to time and passed out on the floor. Betty's temper was explosive. She never hit, but she yelled and raved. She could say awful things. Once, Cheryl was twirling around in the house. There was a shelf set snugly in the corner of the living room, and on that shelf there was a cut glass vase that was very precious to Betty. When we brought her wildflower bouquets, she'd put them in that vase. I'd seen her washing the vase with soap and polishing it with an old pillowcase. Cheryl's arm knocked the vase off the shelf and it struck the floor with a bright sound and shattered into splinters. Betty was working at the stove. She spun around, threw her hands out, and stared. Damn you, Cheryl, she said. That was the only beautiful thing I ever had. Tuffy broke it, Cheryl said, and bolted out the door. I stood mute and too frozen to speak. Betty began to cry, harshly, wiping her face with her forearm. I moved to sweep up the pieces for her, but she said to leave them, in such a heartsick voice that I went to find Cheryl, who was hiding in her usual place on the far side of the hen house. When I asked her why she'd blame me, she gave me a glaring, hateful look and said, Because you're white. Children can be brutal when it comes to gaining the attention and favor of their parents. I didn't hold anything Cheryl did or said against her, and we became close later on. I'm very glad for that, as I've never married, and I needed to confide in someone when, six months ago, I was contacted by my birth mother. Until Betty and Albert died, I lived in an addition tucked onto the tiny house where all of us grew up. They died one right after the other, in the space of a few months, as the long married sometimes do. By then, the other children had either moved off reservation or built new houses closer to town. I stayed on. Even now that Betty and Albert were gone, and I had the whole house, I spent most of my time in my room. One difference was that I let the dog, a descendant of the one that had growled at the welfare lady, live inside with me. Betty had believed in outside dogs, but I petted and pampered this one. I'd had a fireplace installed with a glass front 
and fans that threw the heat into a cozy circle in front of it. And there I'd sit every evening, with the dog at my feet, reading or crocheting while I listened to music. Then one night the telephone rang. I answered it with a simple hello. There was a pause. A woman asked if this was Linda Wishcob speaking. It is, I said, and then I experienced a skip of apprehension. This is Nancy Lasher. The voice was tight and nervous. I am your mother. I took a breath, let it out. I said nothing but simply set the phone back in the cradle. Later, that moment struck me as funny. It was a kind of replay of my birth. I'd done it over. But this time, I had instinctively rejected my mother, left her in the cradle, just as she'd left me. I work in the reservation post office. I am a government employee. At any time, I could have found out my birth parents' address. I could have called them up or, had I been another sort of person, got drunk and stood in their yard and railed at them. But not only did I not care, I actively did not want to know where they lived. Why would I? Everything I did know about them was painful, and I've always tried to avoid pain, which is perhaps why I've never married or had children. That night, after I'd hung up the phone, I made a cup of tea and busied myself with crossword puzzles. One stumped me. The clue was double-goer, twelve spaces, and it took me the longest time in a dictionary to come up with the word doppelganger. Growing up in the midst of a large family, I had never registered the visitations from my presence at those rare moments when I was alone as something strange. The first time I was aware of it was when I was taken from Betty and put in a white room. After that, I occasionally had the sensation that there was someone walking beside me or sitting behind me, always just beyond my peripheral vision. One of the reasons I let the dog live inside was that it kept away this presence which over the years had grown to seem anxious, needy, helpless in some way I could not define. I had never before thought of the presence in relation to my twin, who'd grown up not an hour's drive away from me. But that night the combination of the phone call out of the blue and the twelve-letter word and my puzzle set my thoughts flowing. Betty had told me all she knew of the circumstances of my birth. She was never one to keep things from people for their own good, she always let you have the truth square. But as I'd never thought to ask her about my brother, she hadn't talked about him. Nor had any of my siblings, mainly because I don't think they really cared. Perhaps they didn't even associate me with the lashers. I searched my memory and could not pull out much, except that my twin had been a boy, born first. I had no idea what the lashers had named him. Of course, we were fraternal twins and supposedly no more alike than any other brother and sister. So I was free, that night, to actually hate and resent him. I'd heard my birth mother's voice for the first time. He'd heard it all his life. She had called herself, simply, my mother. Not my birth mother, that careful, distancing term, but my mother. Could have been plain arrogance but then there had also been distress in her tone. My brain had taped the eight words she'd said. All that night and the next morning, too, they played on a loop. By the end of the second day, however, the intonation grew fainter, and I was relieved that on the third day it stopped. On the fourth day, she called again. She began by apologizing. I am sorry to bother you. She went on to say that she had always wanted to meet me but had been afraid to find out where I was. She said that George, my father, was dead and she lived alone and that my twin brother was a postal worker in Bismarck. It was then that I couldn't help myself. I had to ask his name. Linden, she told me. It's an old family name. Was mine an old family name as well? I asked. No, she said, but it matched your brother's name. She told me that George had written my name down on the birth certificate, but that they had never seen me. She told me that he had died of a heart attack 
and she had nearly moved down to Bismarck to be near Linden, but she couldn't sell her home. She said that she hadn't known I lived so close by or she would have called me long before. Her light, conversational chatter must have caused a dreamlike amnesia to come over me, because when she asked if we could meet, she could take me out to dinner at Vert's Supper Club, the only place in the area that served full dinners with drinks, I said yes and agreed on a day. When I finally hung up the phone, I stared for a long time at the little log fire in my fireplace. I'd laid the fire before the call and had been looking forward to popping some corn. Whenever I did, I threw kernels high in the air for the dog to catch. Now I was gripped by something new, a dreadful array of feelings. Which should I choose to succumb to first? I couldn't decide. The dog came and put his head in my lap, and we sat there until I realized that one of the reactions I could have was numbness. Relieved, feeling nothing, I let the dog out, let him in, and went to bed. She was shorter than me, and so ordinary. I was sure that I must have seen her in the street, or at the grocery, or in the bank, perhaps. It would have been hard not to have crossed paths with her at some point around here. But I would not have suspected her of being my mother. I could detect nothing familiar or like myself about her. We did not shake hands or hug. We sat across from each other in a leatherette booth. You aren't... retarded? Lame? She composed herself. You got your coloring from your father, she said. George had dark hair. Nancy Lasher had red-rimmed blue eyes behind bifocals, a sharp nose, a tiny lipless bow of a mouth. Her hair was typical for a woman of 77, tightly permanented, gray-white. At one time, she had been a handsome woman, I thought, with strong features. Now she wore stained dentures, big earrings made of cultured pearls, a pale blue pantsuit. Walking in, I'd noticed her square-toed lace-up therapy shoes. There wasn't anything about her that called to me. She was just any little old lady you wouldn't want to approach. People on the reservation didn't go near women who looked like her. I can't say why. A mutual instinct for avoidance, perhaps. Would you like to order, she asked, touching the menu. Have anything you like. It's all on me. No, thank you. We will split the check, I answered. I'd thought about this in advance, and concluded that if she wanted to assuage her guilt in some way, taking me out to dinner was far too cheap. So we ordered and ate and drank our glasses of sour white wine. As we did so, she talked. She asked me about myself. She drew me out, as they might say in a novel. She made sounds of interest and surprise and sympathy. She said that she admired me. We got through the dinner of walleye and pilaf. Tears came into her eyes over a bowl of chocolate ice cream. I wish I'd known you were going to be so normal. I wish I hadn't ever given you up, she said. I was alarmed at the effect that these words had on me and quickly asked, How's Lyndon? Her tears dried up and her face became sharp and direct. He's very sick, she said. He's got kidney failure and is on dialysis. He's waiting for a kidney. I'd give him one of mine, but I'm a bad match and my kidney is old. George is dead. You are your brother's only hope. I put my napkin to my lips and felt myself floating up off my chair. Someone floated with me, just barely with me, and I could feel his anxious breathing there. Now would be the time to call Cheryl, I thought. I should have called her before. She won't believe this. It seemed best to me, too, not to believe what I had just heard and felt. I had a $20 bill with me, and I put that money on the table and walked out the door. I got to my car but before I could get in, I had to run to the scarp of grass and weed that surrounded the parking lot. I was heaving and crying when I felt 
Nancy Lasher's hand stroking my back. It was the first time my birth mother had ever touched me, and although I quieted beneath her hand, I could detect a stupid triumph in her murmuring voice. She'd known where I lived all along, of course. I pushed her away, repelled by hatred, like an animal sprung from a trap. What should I do? I asked Cheryl. I'm calling Cedric. He lived in Bismarck. Listen here, Tuffy. I'll get Cedric to go to the hospital and pull the plug on this Linden, and you can forget this crap. That was Cheryl. Who else could have made me laugh under the circumstances? It was the morning after the dinner, and I was still in bed. I'd called in sick for the first time in years. You're not seriously even considering it, Cheryl said. Then, when I didn't answer, are you? I don't know. Then I really am calling Cedric up. Those people ditched you. They turned their backs on you. They would have left you in the street to die. You're my sister. I don't want you to share your kidneys. Hey, what if I need one of your kidneys someday? Did you ever think of that? Save your damn kidney for me. Okay, I said. I love you, she said, and I said it back. Tuffy, don't you do it, she warned, but her voice was suddenly small, vulnerable. After she hung up, I called the numbers on the card my mother had given me and made appointments for the tests. While I was down in Bismarck, I stayed with Cedric and his wife, whose name is Cheryl, with a C. She's a quiet person, but she put out little towels for me that she had appliqued with the shapes of wild animals. In tiny motel soaps, she'd swiped. She made my bed. She tried to show me that she approved of what I was doing, although the others in my family did not. She is very Christian. But this was not a do-unto-others sort of thing for me. I've already said that I don't seek pain, and I would not have contemplated going through with it unless I found the alternative unbearable. All my life, knowing without knowing it, I had waited for this to happen. My twin had been the one beside me, just out of sight. He did not know that he had been there, I was sure. He did not know that when I was stolen from Buddy and alone in the whiteness he had held my hand, sat with me, and grieved. And now that I'd met his mother, I understood something more. In a small town, people knew everything. They knew what she had done by abandoning me. She'd have had to turn her fury with herself, her shame, on someone else, the child she'd chosen. She'd have blamed Lyndon. I had felt the contempt and the triumph in her touch. I was grateful now for the way things had turned out. Before we were born, my twin had had the compassion to crush me, to improve me by deforming me. I was the one who was spared. I'll tell you what, the doctor, a woman who gave me the results of the tests and conducted the interview, said. You are a match, but I know your story. And I think it only fair that you know that Lyndon Lasher's kidney failure is his own fault. He has issues. He tried to commit suicide with a massive dose of acetaminophen, aspirin, and alcohol. That's why he is on dialysis. I think you should take that into account when making your decision. Later that day, I sat with Lyndon, who said, You don't have to do this. You don't have to be a Jesus. I know what you did, I said. I'm not religious. Interesting, Lyndon said. He stared at me. We sure don't look alike. I realized that this was not a compliment, because he was nice looking. He'd got the best of his mother's features. But there was something else, too. His eyes shifted around the room. He kept biting his lip, whistling, rolling his blanket between his fingers. Are you a mail carrier, he asked. I work behind the counter, mostly. I've got a good route, he said, yawning. A regular route. I could do it in my sleep. Every Christmas, my people leave me cards, money, cookies, that sort of thing. Did you ever think, I said that there was someone walking your route 
just beside you or just behind you? Someone there when you closed your eyes, gone when you opened them? No, he said. Are you crazy? That was me, I said. I picked up his hand and he let it go limp. We sat there together, silent. After a while, he pulled his hand out of mine and massaged it as though my grip had hurt. I don't like you, he said. This was my mother's idea. I don't want your kidney. I don't want a piece of you inside me. I'd rather get on a list. Frankly, you're kind of a disgusting woman. I mean, I'm sorry, but you've probably heard this before. No, I said. Nobody's ever told me that. You probably have a dog, he said. Dogs love whoever feeds them. I doubt you could get a husband, or whatever, unless you put a bag over your head. And even then, it would have to come off at night. Are you saying this to drive me away? My throat clamped down on my voice. I swallowed, drew a deep breath to stop the shakes that had started in my body. You want to die. You don't want to be saved, right? I'm not saving you for any reason. You won't owe me anything. Owe you? He seemed genuinely surprised. His teeth were so straight that I was sure he'd had orthodontic work done when he was young. He started laughing now, showing all those beautiful teeth. He shook his head, wagged his finger at me, laughing so hard he seemed overcome. When I bent down awkwardly to pick up my purse, he was infected by such a bout of hilarity that he nearly choked. I tried to get away from him, to get to the door, but instead I backed up against the wall and was stuck there in that white, white room. That was Tommy Orange reading The Years of My Birth by Louise Erdrich. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2011 and was incorporated into Erdrich's novel The Roundhouse, which was published in 2012. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to news stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Tommy, the story seems to me is built very much on the this idea of doubling. It's not just that we have the good twin and the bad twin. We have the good mother and the bad mother. We have the sense of women as life-giving and men as life-taking. And we have all of these kind of pairings, starting with the doctor who wants to let the baby die and the nurses who don't let the baby die. How do you think that those sort of pairings and opposites fuel this story? Yeah, while uh, there is so many opposites, it's a really nuanced story. 
Um, and I think by showing us all these opposites and then sort of driving through the middle and getting on the inside of things, uh, it does a lot of work to fill out the story. You also have the inside dog and the outside dog, and that's, that's another sort of cultural touchstone because there's a certain type of native value that like the dogs belong outside and they're sort of the res dog. And it was just a subtle way that she introduced that as sort of insider knowledge of uh, native life. The, the, the two Cheryls also, you have the Cheryl with a C and her sister Cheryl. Right. I love that because those are the kinds of things we encounter in life all the time, people who have the same name, but you never encounter it in fiction because it's confusing. <laughs> Louise just went with that. And I think that the work that she's doing with the two Cheryls is even deeper than just uh, that. It's that there's the white Cheryl who's, or maybe she's not white, but she's Christian and her sister Cheryl sort of has uh, different cultural values um, being raised native. Yeah. I mean, the main the main doubling obviously is the pair of twins and this mysterious phantom doppelganger that might be her twin or might be something completely created by her imagination. How do you read that, that presence? Yeah, I think the, the main doubling happening here is um, not to lean too heavily on this cultural value piece, but I feel that what she's doing with this character is sort of highlighting how this native woman, Betty, rescued a child that would have sort of been a throwaway, would have ended up in an institution like the character who she read about who talked about the singular experience of being held and how strange and, mm -hmm. and beautiful it was and how for her, she didn't even uh, sort of re remember necessarily any time that she was held. And it was so normal for her. That was the way that she knew that she was loved. I think there's a cultural value thing happening here where uh, because she was imperfect and sort of deformed, it was a throwaway and valueless to the original parents and and this woman saw her as precious life and how she was ultimately saved by this deformity mm -hmm. ended up with the better life so it seems like it was a disadvantage ultimately because her birth mom sort of ended up internalizing the guilt and then let, letting it out on her brother like she says that her brother um, saved her from a worse life by crushing her in the womb yeah. you know like is she speaking literally or is, is that just a natural grace that hap just happened to happen in her life? Yeah. And do you think that the presence for her is the brother? I read it that way. Yeah. L like I said, I think I've heard enough twin stories to know that there's sort of a connection. I mean, I don't know if it's like a one-to-one, -one, like you can feel the other's pain or anything like that, but I think there is something significant about sharing a womb with another being and how that can carry into life. And so mm -hmm. I, I definitely read it as the real thing and not just her imagining it. On the other hand, Lyndon probably doesn't feel it or else he, he kind of ignores it. Yeah. Cause he, you know, he says, are you crazy? Uh, they're in the <laughs> hospital room and you know, that could also be read two ways. He could be in denial of, of it. Um, and you know, being, raised a certain way or yeah when the story came out i did a, a q a with louise and i asked her about the presence and whether we should read it as Lyndon. and her answer was the presence could be a neglected spirit helper it could be a projection of linda's need it could be the shadowy emanation of a lost twin it could be the thoughts of her dog as the writer i leave <laughs> these decisions for the reader <laughs> So I think we have to take the dog out of the equation because there are different dogs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless she, she gets a, a needier dog later in life. But um, it's interesting to me that she at least wanted to be nonspecific about it and wanted to leave all of those options open. And I think that's what I don't love about certain magical realism is um, it gives up the mystery by f mm -hmm. falling into fantasy. And what I don't love about things that are strictly realism is that there's not enough mystery. And I love how open and vast you can make a story uh, if you keep the mystery. And I, I think she does that in this story. And, um, and it, I think it's more engaging for the reader if the writer uh, makes decisions to keep the mystery because you can go in a lot of different directions and it really makes the story malle malleable. And it makes you do some of the work of mm -hmm. writing it, yeah. you know, as you read it. 
And, and something I noticed when rereading the story for this was that she often, Erdrich often tells us Linda is experiencing feelings. You know, she has a dreadful array of feelings. And, and she shows us the reaction that she has to the feelings, you know, whether she's crying or heaving or so on. She never tells us what exactly the feelings are. You know, it's another thing that she leaves us to assume or guess or fill in in a way. It's, it's kind of a fill in the blank story, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's the one time she sort of does tell us um, she's referencing numbness. She says she recognizes that one reaction she could have to her mom calling after all these years is feeling numbness. And it's a revelation for her that she's allowed to feel that in a strange mm-hmm. way. Um, and it allows her to go to bed and go to sleep. You know, there's also the moment where she, Linda says she spent her whole life trying to avoid pain. Why do you think, knowing that, she pursues this? She goes and meets the mother. She goes and sees Linda and she pursues having the kidney transplant. All of those things are painful. Why would she take them on? I think she tells us uh, she wouldn't do it if if the alternative wasn't unbearable. And I think there's a stark difference to the the moralism happening here. Um, I don't. It's it's a little bit mysterious where her moralism comes from because she says she's not religious, but she feels like she has the obligation to this twin who she maybe even sees as owing the twin something for being there when she needed him, like in the white room when she screams Mm -hmm. and she felt the presence there Um, early on, maybe feeling that the twin was there to help or the helping spirit, as he said, or she said. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting that she says at the end, you won't owe me anything, which is what makes him explode into this cruel laughter. Yeah. Why do you think that he behaves the way that he does when she goes to the hospital? You know, first, before he becomes really cruel, he's so uncomfortable. You know, he's whistling and he's sort of fidgeting with his blanket and looking around. And then he goes into the full bore cruelty. I mean, I think he's just a miserable person. You know, he tried to commit suicide and he's the opposite of her in a lot of ways. He's got like a nice face and these um, these teeth that seemed like they had orthodontic work. Um, on the exterior, he's sort of Everything looks good, but he's got nothing on the inside. And I think that cruelty, um, that shallowness comes from the superficiality about what a life looks like on the outside and inside. And what fills up the inside is uh, largely how you were raised and who your parents were. And um, I, I don't know that we know that her birth mom was as cruel as she imagines or as resentful or took out whatever she did on him. But he's clearly a a miserable person. And I think we can probably agree with her that he did not have a great life. Yeah. It's almost like there was enough material for one good person and he got the outside goodness and she got the inside goodness. Um, And even the mother, you know, when the mother first sees her, yeah, she says she regrets giving her up, but she also very quickly says, you know, you got your coloring from your father. She's sort of disclaiming again and rejecting again, trying to distance herself. And I just love the the pivot that happens, um, the reveal of when we find out why she's contacted her. It, mm-hmm. It's such a stark mm-hmm. turn in the story. Yeah. Do you think the birth mother is being entirely manipulative in that moment, in that scene? I do. I, th- I think everything yeah. down to the word choice when she first calls her saying mother and she notices this, you know, she noticed she doesn't use the removed birth mother. And I think even that was a subtle manipulation to try to like, uh, take some claim that uh, I'm your mother. Mm-hmm. She owns that kidney. You sort of, <laughs> you, you're obligated to do this for your real family sort of thing. Yeah. So knowing all of that, why does Linda want to give up her kidney? What is that unbearable alternative? I don't, I don't know that I know this. I think it's living with this presence, even though, you know, she has the dog inside because she doesn't want the presence because the dog sort of scares off the presence. Um, so, so Mm -hmm. it's, it's an ominous presence when she's older, but I feel there is some deep obligation she feels to her birth family. 
And I don't know exactly where it comes from, but it's the same sort of unavoidable need that people have toward their family, even when they hate them, even when they're, they have bad relationships. There's a sort of deep need for connecting to birth family. There's something unavoidable there. Yeah. Louise at the time in the, in the Q&A said, uh, Linda's generosity makes her stronger than she knows. And perhaps the generosity is what she got from Betty. That's her, in a sense, her real birthright mm -hmm. from the person who was really her mother. What do you make of this recurring image of the, of the white room? You know, it's the place where she's torn away from what she loves. And at the very end of the story, she's kind of thrown back into that white room. What does it represent for you? Reading it in this time, um, this sort of toxic whiteness leading the country and a lot of problematic aspects of white culture uh, that are coming to surface um, with like the Black Lives Matter movement and the disparity between how people are affected by the coronavirus. At the end of the story, being stuck in a room with cruel laughing whiteness and those white teeth, it was just a really poignant moment for me reading it in this time. And I think there is a, definitely a commentary on white culture here and the differences between native culture and white culture. I, I don't think it was a mistake that the room was white. Linda, ironically, is the only white child in the family, and she's the only one who stays on the reservation. You know, all the other kids leave. <laughs> she chooses not to be white, in a sense. And I think she's sort of shocked by that one moment as a child with Cheryl when she says, Cheryl, why'd you blame me for breaking this thing? And Cheryl says, because you're white. The implication may be being that Cheryl is anti-white, but also maybe being that Linda won't be punished because she's white. I'm not quite sure how to how to read Cheryl's intent there. Yeah, and I tried to I, I tried to understand the mom's reaction, whether the mom she sort of breaks in that moment. And I don't know if it's because she knew Cheryl was lying and at Tuffy's mm -hmm. expense, or if she just really cared about that one thing that broke. I, I was trying to read into that and I wasn't sure which which one it was either. Yeah. Yeah, it was a complicated moment. Let's talk about the title, The Years of My Birth. How many years? Why plural? I think even though, you know, she's, she's looking back, I think at 50 years of life here, um, the way she expands and collapses time is pretty amazing and starting us out but in the delivery room. Um, I think her being called by her birth mom and being called to have the opportunity to do this, to give this kidney to her brother, isn't an aspect of, of birth happening. Like nothing was alive regarding her family. So I, to me, I, I read it as, you know, the years when she started out and she's taken in by Betty and they're pulling her legs and forming her head back to as normal as they can get it. And then the, the later years when she has this connection, I think it's referencing those two different kinds of births. How, how did you read it? Well, I suppose she's given the opportunity to give Lyndon a new life. But there's also the flip side of that when Mrs. Lasher calls for the first time and she hangs up on her and, and Linda says to herself, she's replayed the birth, except this time she was the one rejecting the connection. In a way, she gets her own back in that moment. Mm. And then she turns around and pursues the connection. So it's complicated. It, it's hard to know what's drawing her. And I think it's that opportunity, not having it before the call, she's sort of stuck with rejection. But when she's given the opportunity, I think it really moves something in her. And, and she initially, like you said, where she lays the phone on the cradle. But when she has no contact with, with um, her family, she doesn't have the opportunity to say yes or no to them, to say yes or no to the yeah. kidney. She's sort of stuck with her own feelings of rejection and un maybe unworthiness. Yeah. I suppose it's the first time she's been given power. Right? Yeah. And she responds well to it. Though at the very end of the story, I think Erdrich deliberately avoids giving us a resolution. You know, we end the story not knowing if Linda's going to go ahead and donate her kidney. How do you read it? Um, oh, I love the decision. 
there's a really um, intense ending to leave us there. I want to read it as Linda not giving him the kidney, but the resolve that she seemed to have and the sort of brazen courage to face Lyndon, even while he was being cruel, it seems to me there was a possibility that she would go through with it anyway. Yeah. The story, uh, when Louise wrote it, she wrote it as a story, as we were saying. And then she, uh, what she told me is she couldn't let Linda go. And she went back to the story. She wrote the story over a period of four or five years, actually. It took her a long time. She said she kept putting it down and coming back to it. Then once it was done, she ended up pulling it into the roundhouse, her novel. And in the book, the kind of moral, ethical situation becomes much more complicated, if possible. <laughs> you know, She does donate the kidney. And Lyndon recovers, and he goes on to become a rapist and a murderer. So Linda, in a way, has enabled the murder. Does knowing that change how you read this story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the heart of the roundhouse. I mean, not the heart, but, you know, the, yeah. the big thing that happens. Uh, so there's a, a complicity there that's pretty intense that doesn't exist in the story as it stands alone. I think it becomes a whole different thing when you put it into the roundhouse. Um, I think the story stands differently on its own than it does yeah. as it exists in the roundhouse. And I think I want to keep them separate in a way. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a very different thing. And also, what was interesting to me is that the lashers in the roundhouse become the larks, which is, you know, you think of lashing and lashing out, and the lark is sort of, lighthearted and so on. So I asked Louise about that and she said she didn't want to tip the scales on Lyndon too early. You know, she wanted to leave open the idea that he might be a good mm -hmm. guy. <laughs> so so he was given a different name um, in that context. And you can you can feel the rethinking process that happens, I think, repeatedly for Louise when she does bring stories into her novels. Um, they become something quite different definitely the sort of moral center of the story becomes a very different one. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Tommy. Thank you, Deborah. Louise Erdrich is the author of 16 novels, including The Plague of Doves, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and The Roundhouse, which won the National Book Award in 2012. Her most recent novel, The Night Watchman, was published in March. Tommy Orange's debut novel, There There, was published in 2018 and won the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. He's working on a new novel, Wandering Stars, which will be published in 2022. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>